0: Well, many times when I begin a sermon, I'll start with a story or an illustration that might help, at least I think it helps, focus your attention, uh, focus your thinking or your heart onto the text that we're going to look at. Uh, But this evening is a little different. The text that we're looking at this evening actually is an illustration or uh, an example of something that gets people thinking. The whole purpose of the text that we're going to look at is to get us to ask the question, Who is John the Baptist? That's the first thing. Who is Jesus? And who are we? Alright, so if you're kind of studious or, or a teacher at heart or something like that, those might be three things to be looking for. The text this evening is going to deal with who is John the Baptist, who is Jesus, and who are we? Now, three weeks ago, we were looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And we looked at that and we saw that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin and he was imprisoned by Herod, the Jewish king. John's ministry was to prepare the way for the expected one, for the Messiah or the Savior. He believed, as many did, that this Messiah would bring judgment against Israel's foes and salvation to the oppressed. But things were not going according to John's plans. John was in prison, and Jesus didn't seem to be mounting a strong military force to go rescue him from prison. So John the Baptist sends some of his messengers to Jesus and says, Are you the expected one, or should we be looking for somebody else? Because this is not what I expected. Jesus, of course, replies that just go back and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These were all things that the expected one was expected to do. But as we talked about, Jesus was doing all this blessing without the expected judgment. He was suspending judgment until the day he returns. What grace, right? So after Jesus answers John's disciples, they go back to report to John what Jesus has told them. And that's where we pick up the story this evening. So would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. So referring now to John's disciples. After these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Well, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But seriously, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? You know, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men try and take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Would you pray with me? Thank you for this word that you have preserved for us, Lord. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that this message has something to say about who you are and who we are in you. I pray that you would help us to surrender our preconceived notions, our familiarity with the text. Help us even to suspend the tapes we play in our minds over and over about who we think we are. And help us to receive your message about who you say we are. And in all things, be exalted. Be exalted, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So the text starts off in verse 7. John's disciples leave and Jesus starts addressing the crowd. But I want to skip ahead for just a minute to verse 15. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 15. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Literally, what this means is, listen up. Now, raise your hand if you have ears. Everyone, okay, yeah, right. So, in, in, in because you raised your hand, I can tell that you also can hear me. And my point there is that I think the crowd that Jesus is speaking with... Like, I don't think they're a special group of earless nomads. Like, I bet you they have ears too. Jesus isn't saying, like, if you have ears, listen up. This is a colloquialism or a way of saying, I have something very important for you to say. And it has two purposes. One is simply pay attention. Pay attention. Jesus is going to say some very important things about John's identity, about his own identity, and about the crowd's identity. So listen well, because it's going to be subtle. Second, there's a warning here. Be careful how you listen. Because you're responsible for what you hear. And and really, we should come to to worship, to Bible study. Anytime you open up the Bible, it ought to give us a little bit of a a pause. And I kind of say this, I'm not really joking, but you'll probably take it as a joke. But seriously, you might want to leave now if you don't want to receive what Jesus has to say. Because when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, he means listen up. This is important. And you're responsible now for what you know. So I'm just, that's my caveat out front. Okay. Now, with this in mind, let's go back to verse 7. Jesus begins by asking the crowd some questions. He asks questions for two reasons. First of all, he wants to get these people kind of to wake up. And when you ask a question, it kind of gets people thinking, right? He wants to get them thinking. And there's three spheres of people that Jesus is trying to get thinking. First of all, he wants to get the crowds he's talking to thinking about what he's going to say. But the second sphere is anytime you're reading a gospel account, right? This is written by presumably Matthew, 60 to 80 years after Jesus. So Matthew is putting this in there on purpose because he wants his listeners, his readers, to listen up. Okay? And there's a third sphere, and that would be you and me, because we're reading this today. Alright, so three spheres of people he wants to listen up. Jesus asks questions to get us thinking and second he wants us to think Because whenever you think about something and you come to a conclusion on your own You're going to own that conclusion much more than if somebody just told you so Which is why by the way it's one of our core values as a church to be a church that's asking questions Questions are not dangerous Asking questions is not a bad thing Because when you work through the process, and I think I believe each generation has to work through its own process of faith and discovery so that we can own it for ourselves. Now this crowd that Jesus is talking to has kind of been like a bunch of groupies in a way. They've followed Jesus around. They've heard him speak like no one else they've ever heard speak. All right, so he's got a little celebrity effect going on. They've seen him do things that nobody else is doing. I mean, he's healing people at a distance in other towns. He raised a little girl from the dead. He's casting out demons. This guy is amazing. They're hanging around. But following Jesus is not a spectator sport. It's not passive, and it's not a fair weather activity, kind of like Seattle sports fans, right? It's not just, we don't just jump on board where they're doing well. So, he asks them some questions to wake up their minds. So, what did you guys go out in the wilderness to see anyway? A reed shaking in the winds? So they're thinking of John the Baptist, and he brings up a reed shaking in the wind. That's kind of symbolic for somebody who changes their opinion as the wind blows. Whatever the most people or or the majority of people are saying, well, I'm going to change my teaching to kind of fit there. That way I don't make too many enemies. Now, from what little you know about John the Baptist? Was he like that? No, no way. So what did you go out to see? A reed shaking in the wind? No, that's not John the Baptist. So what did you go out to see then? A man dressed in soft clothes. You know those who wear soft clothes—they're in kings' palaces. Did you go out to see that? Israel's history is filled with, um, with well, a few good kings, but many, many corrupt kings who took the people down the road of idolatry, and they did not want God's real prophets in their courts. So you know what they did was they hired false prophets, and they gave them apartments in their palaces and fine silks, and they basically paid them to tell them what they wanted to hear. Sure, God says do that. God says do that. Is that the kind of prophet that John is? No. John, John lives out in the wilderness. John's not that kind of prophet. He wasn't in fancy clothes. He was in camel's hair and a leather belt. He didn't eat the king's food. He ate bugs. It says so in, in chapter 3. He didn't say what the king wanted to hear. In fact, he confronted King Herod to his face. About an adulterous relationship he was in. He didn't live in the king's palace. He lived in the king's prison. So what did you go out to see anyway? A reed shaken in the wind? A palace prophet? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. Yeah, you did. And I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the greatest prophet. In fact, Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest man Ever. Now, have you ever been in the presence of a great person? Some of you, I think, maybe have something that must come to mind. What are some of the qualities of greatness that you've noticed from people? Just shout them out. What are some qualities of greatness? If you've been in the presence of a great person, maybe a, I don't know, maybe it's your spouse. You earned some serious points right now. <laughs> Eric, what's Emily like? Just tell her. <laughs> Humility, Humility. Well spoken. Honesty. Honesty and what she said. Okay, okay, great. Great. So those are some so there's some qualities. And you know, oftentimes we could be in the presence of greatness and we don't even realize it. Because great people don't often tout their own greatness, right? If if they're humble and and honest and those kind of things. So the crowds had been in John's presence, but they didn't know that they were actually in the presence of the greatest man ever. That's a huge statement. I mean, start to think about is just Israel's history. Let's not even go to, to other places, but just Israel's history. He's greater than Moses, who the Bible says is the most humble man who ever lived. Moses, whom God chose to bring the Israelites out of exile from Egypt, he's greater than Moses? Is he greater than Elijah? Elijah! The guy didn't even die. A chariot of fire comes and takes him up to be with God before he even dies. Or is he greater than Elisha, who like, would lay on dead people and breathe on them, and they come back to life and makes axe heads float. Th- Isn't Elisha the one that called the bear out on the kids for calling them bald? All right. He's he's greater than Elisha? He's greater than David, the warrior king, and the psalmist and the prophet. As far as I know, John the Baptist didn't ever write any psalms or lead anything, or he wasn't a warrior. And what about the writing prophets? The great Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and on and on and on. As far as we know, John the Baptist didn't write anything down. We don't have the prophet of John. How is John the greatest who was ever born of a woman according to Jesus? Now I asked before, what makes a person great? And those were some great answers. Uh, I think ultimately, what makes a person great is what God thinks about that person. And what makes a prophet great is ultimately the message that the prophet has to proclaim. And what makes a message great is where the message comes from and the fruit that the message bears. So John is the greatest prophet because he's not only a prophet, but he is the fulfillment of other prophecies. He is the object of prophecy. Eric read earlier from Luke 1. And I bet you're thinking, isn't that an Advent text? Like why are you reading about the birth of John and Elizabeth and all? Because in that, when the Holy Spirit comes around upon Zechariah, he begins this amazing outburst of joyous song in the Spirit. And one of the things he says is that you, child, my son, will be a prophet of the Most High. A prophet of God. Jesus quotes Malachi one. Malachi is the last of the canonical prophets. He wrote roughly 400 years before John the Baptist and Jesus were on the scene in the flesh. Malachi prophesies about the corruption of Israel and the promise that one day God himself would return and dwell among the people. He would bring judgment and salvation. And who is this coming prophet that would come? Malachi 4.5 says, Behold... I send to you Elijah. Now, by the time Malachi is writing, Elijah has been taken up to heaven a long time. So this is weird. Elijah is not on earth anymore by a long stretch. Like 900 BC, that's Elijah, okay? Behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, I want you to listen with fresh ears to something. This is what Matthew 11:4 says. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. How is John the greatest? He is the fulfillment of a prophecy. He's not just a prophet. And not just the fulfillment of any prophecy, but the fulfillment of the prophecy about the coming of God. No wonder... Jesus wants us to think about what John was wearing. When he asks the question, would did you go out to see a guy in soft clothes? <laughs> no, John doesn't wear soft clothes. What does he wear? Camel's hair. And a leather belt girded around his loins. Why is that important? In 2 Kings 1.8, it introduces us to Elijah the prophet. And guess what it describes him as? A hairy man who wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his loins. We are made to see these connections. John is this Elijah figure. There's more. Jesus is teaching us About something about his own identity. If John is Elijah returned, then God himself must be coming. So let's go back to this Malachi passage real quick. And let me read to you the actual passage from Malachi. And remember, this is God the Father speaking, okay? Here's what it says. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. God refers to himself three times. Listen, I am going to send my messenger to clear the way before me. That's all talking about God. Okay? Now watch what Jesus does with this quote in Matthew. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He changed all the references to God, three of them, and put in a second person singular pronoun. English teachers. Who is this now referring to? What is Jesus saying and changing these texts from the me and the I's to the you? The reference to God three times is replaced with the reference to Jesus three times. Jesus is revealing who John is as an oblique way of revealing who he is. He's too smart to come out and say, Hey, guess what? I'm God. I am the king. Because who thought they were king of the world at that time? Caesar. And who thought they were king of the Jews at that time? Herod. And what happens if some vagabond homeless dude who travels around to villages and preaches says, I'm the new king off with his head. That's what happens. And eventually he will go to the cross in his own time. So John the Baptist is confused because Jesus is not challenging the authority of the world. Powers with force. The crowds have been confused too. Jesus says, you know, from the days of John the Baptist until the present day, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent people try and take it by force. The greatest man Whoever was born of a woman before Jesus, John the Baptist, was sitting in a prison. He would be executed. And the reigning powers of the world just seemed to get stronger and stronger. But Jesus is saying, I'm aware of this violence. I know about it. When a new kingdom breaks in, it it displaces the existing kingdom. The old kingdom will react with violence. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will enter through the king himself, Jesus, absorbing the full wrath of the world's violence on the cross. The kingdom's king will then defeat the world's and Satan's greatest weapon, death itself. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, to drive this message home, Jesus tells a parable, he tells a story parables are stories that are meant to do one thing well many things but one of the main things they're meant to do is to disarm their audience okay one scholar writes parables create an imaginary world that reflects reality so sometimes we don't like to be told straight up we're wrong about something or you know we need to change but you know, let, let me just tell you a story about these other fictitious people we could turn them into animals or whatever it is and then you get like the moral of the story and you realize oh Dang, he's talking about me. Or he's revealing some truth about the world that I live in. Okay? So Jesus tells this story or parable about spoiled children who won't play well together. Some played a joyous song on the flute, and oftentimes uh, that connotes uh, a wedding scene. So they they played this joyous song on a flute, and the children wouldn't even dance. I mean, who doesn't dance at the wedding? Uh, And then other children played a funeral dirge, And the children wouldn't mourn. So you've got these two extremes. Like, what do you want? What do you spoiled kids want? And when interpreting parables, it's important that we don't turn them into an allegory. So an allegory would try to, okay, so who's Jesus? The kids or who are the kids? Is that this generation? That's not how parables generally work. What you do is you look at the whole story and you say, what is the sense of this story? And the sense we get from the story is that the generation that Jesus is talking about is resistant to the kingdom of God. They don't want to hear this new message. They're happy just the way things are in their life. So John comes with this serious message of judgment and repentance. He fasts and lives alone in the wilderness. He eats bugs. And the people say, that dude has a demon. Well, then... What do you want? Because then Jesus comes on the scene and, and he parties and he socializes with outcasts and, and he, he, he mixes it up socially. And people say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is saying, basically, listen, you're in the presence of greatness. This generation, speaking of these crowds in the, in the book here, this generation is more blessed than any that's ever come before it. All generations before had been leading up to John and Jesus. All the prophets of old were looking toward John and Jesus. Jesus is the point of the law and the prophets. And He's standing in their midst. And He's saying, you're missing it. It's time for you to stop being fair weather fans. It's time to move from being a spectator to a participant. If you are in the presence of John, the greatest man who ever lived, and why is he the greatest man who ever lived? Because he was chosen to prepare the way for the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of the kingdom, Jesus Himself. Now that in itself, if we were to stop this message right there, is good news, and I'll tell you why. In the book of John, 17:3, it says, "This is eternal life, that you may know that 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 they may know God, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." John 30:31 30, says that the whole book of John has been written. So that we, so that they, so that hearers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you would have life in his name. It's an amazing revelation that if John is really this Elijah figure, and he is coming before Jesus, then who must Jesus be? The Savior. That in itself is really good news. But, as I said in the beginning of this message, there's three things that we're looking at. Who is John? Who is Jesus? And who are we? We've seen that John is the promised one, who's supposed to come in the spirit of Elijah. We've seen that if John is the Elijah figure, then Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. So what about us? Let's go back to verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now I thought it was a bold statement to say that John the Baptist is the greatest person who ever lived. Greater than Elijah and Moses and David. Greatest. But this is is getting ridiculous. Are you saying he's saying that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. The least of the followers of Jesus is greater than the greatest. How can that be? Let me ask you those of you who are followers of Jesus. How great do you feel? When you came here, did you say, "I feel greater than the greatest who ever lived?" But what our Lord says is that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Do you ever see yourself in that way? Why don't we feel great? Well, because we measure greatness by our deeds. We measure greatness by what others often think about us. And in the church, and in the church, we wrongly measure greatness greatness by our morality. We measure our greatness by the time since we last looked at pornography. We measure our greatness and how many days it's been since we yelled at our spouse. We measure greatness by our feelings. And good luck with that, we live in the grayest place on earth. I mean, come on. We're like up against a wall on that one. We measure greatness by how we feel about how we're doing compared to other people. seriously, if you have ears to hear, listen to what Jesus is saying. If you believe what Jesus is saying about himself, that he is the Son of God, and if you've banked your life on the fact that Jesus is your Savior and your King, then you are part of his kingdom. That would qualify you as being even the least. You could be the least in that kingdom, but you are greater than the greatest guy who ever lived. Why? Well, for just like John, we can speak about Jesus. Right? We can proclaim him. Um, we can articulate theology. We can show who Jesus uh, is through the scriptures. Like we did this evening. Now you know that. And you can say, look here, uh, if John is Elijah, then Jesus is the son of God. I mean, you can do that now. So, yay. That's one reason why uh, you're just as great as John. But why are you greater? tell something that John couldn't and that is that you now have a relationship with the risen and reigning Jesus. John didn't know Jesus pre-crucifixion pre-resurrection. John never had the Holy Spirit like you do. The Holy Spirit that makes God's word come alive like it does for you. He never had the Holy Spirit that helps you grow in Christ likeness. He never had the Holy Spirit that reminds you that you are adopted into the family of God. John didn't have any of those things. But we, the least in the kingdom of heaven, are greater than John because of who Jesus is. That's the primary reason. Because of what Jesus has done. Because the weaker... Because the weaker you are and the weaker I am, the greater Jesus must be to include us in his kingdom. We can be called greater because we don't simply know about Jesus, like what he was supposed to be like or what the Bible says about him. We can know firsthand what the resurrected Jesus is like. And we can be called greater because the one who is greater than us has called us his own. Let me say this. You are great. Because Jesus, the great one, thought you were so precious and valuable that he died for you. If you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are greater than John. So hear the good news. If you feel unworthy, unspiritual, unfit, unnoticed, Unimportant. There is a place for you, particularly for you in God's kingdom. Jesus himself says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you've already begun to follow a life, or a life of following Jesus, why not you just seriously take a moment and just look at someone next to you, another disciple. You are looking at someone who's one of the greatest who has ever lived because of what Christ has done. You are in the presence right now in this room of greatness because the master of the disciple you are looking at is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess that it would be uh, a work of your spirit to really receive this message. I even notice in myself all of the yeah buts that rise up within me. All of the resistance we put up, all of the false barriers to your love and to your acceptance of us. And I pray for a work of your Spirit to break down those barriers that keep us from receiving your acceptance and your love, your grace and your mercy. I pray that we would walk in new life. A boldness that is tempered with great humility. We want more of your life running through our veins, Lord Jesus. Come and fill us, we pray. Amen.